You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Saturday Live presents Skeleton Twins of Disguise. Oh, and live from New York, it's Saturday night! Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam. This is going to be a rough one this week, Thomas. And I'm Thomas Mariani, and here's your host, Adam Thomas. Ladies and gentlemen, Adam Thomas... I got my name said three times, four times, something like that. That's pretty nice. (laughs) Well, hello everybody, welcome to the Double-Edged Devil, Bill. And uh, as per usual, we are covering two films this week that we picked at the end of our last episode. Uh, A good film and a bad film. And the topic for this week is SNL Cast Member Vehicles, which was chosen by our patrons over at patreon.com slash gedbpod. Which, of course, we thank you for choosing this. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because, like, I think it's pretty clear we both grew up as fans of at least snl cast members though i'm i'm curious adam when did you first start watching the actual show snl who was your cast my cast was uh you know sandler farley hartman spade schneider uh that whole that run so that's like early 90s to mid 90s about right yeah that's when i really came into it and then like obviously you know, the shake-up when they got rid of a ton of people, but Will Ferrell, Cheryl Terry, Molly Shannon, all those. I watched it throughout all that as well. But yeah, definitely the Sandler cast, that era, was when I started. Well, thinking back on it, I think the cast for me was probably, given our sort of age difference, was probably about like the mid-2000s era. It was probably like the Andy Samberg digital short era was what I think kind of like like really hooked me into the show. Because I remember like Lazy Sunday and all other stuff really... Like, getting me interested. And also, I think a big factor was Keenan Thompson, admittingly, because I was a big fan of all that when I was younger. And then him kind of coming onto the show and weirdly being, like, the longest-running SNL cast member, which is so weird. That's so fucking bizarre. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, he beat Tim Meadows. <laughs> yeah, you know. But I do also remember, I think I've said this on the show before, like, there was a point, weirdly, in, like, Netflix's early digital streaming age where they had, like, all the seasons of SNL prior to, I think, like, that... Will Ferrell, Cherry O'Terry era, like, streaming on there. Uh-huh. And I remember watching a lot of those. Like, So that includes, like, Not Ready for Primetime Players, or even, like, the weird seasons where, like, Robert Downey Jr. was a cast member, <laughs> which is true. Yeah. You can yep. find that. It's a weird season. <laughs> Sarah Silverman was a cast member for a season or two. Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Joe Piscopo. <laughs> right. Also... I was introduced more to, like, some of those classic cast members through, like, the vehicles that were made after they were popular in SNL, like a Blues Brothers or Ghostbusters, any of those other things. Like, I was introduced to them that way first, 
I think those were gateways to sort of like, oh, they started in SNL, and then you kind of like gravitate toward like some of their earlier sketches and stuff like that. So we figured this would be an interesting topic for sure, given, um, you know, with the SNL people leaving SNL, sometimes it works out pretty well. Sometimes it, uh, you know, at least kind of like allows them to stay afloat. And then sometimes they just don't do much of anything after the show. I.e. boat trip. Of course, yes. <laughs> she was saying it's everyone's favorite SNL cast member who's still working consistently to this day. Yeah, I mean, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, we picked a couple movies at the end of our last episode. Um, between, you know, you had two good picks, Adam, and I had two bad picks, and we ended up choosing randomly number two, one and ten, and that got us our good and bad feature for this week. And uh, your good feature choice was The Skeleton Twins, starring Kristen Wiig and Bill Hader, both SNL cast members. And then uh, my bad choice was Master of Disguise, starring Dana Carvey. Yep. Yep. So first, let's start with our good feature, The Skeleton Twins. I was thinking you'd come stay with me. Well, last I heard you moved to L.A. to be an actor. Yeah, you know, I hear I won an Oscar. Oh, you're my brother. We're supposed to be there for each other. I'm tired of you acting like you're the healthy one and I'm your special needs oh kid. You know what? You need to take the edge off. Dad always told us to stick together, no matter what. Maybe we should have a dude's day. I think your version of dude's day and my version are totally different. So, The Skeleton Twins came out uh, September 12th, 2014. Uh, as I mentioned, stars former cast members Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig, and uh, sort of like a dramedy feature of sorts about Kristen Wiig and Bill Hader play siblings, and uh, the brother, played by Bill Hader, Milo, um, has a suicide attempt at the beginning of the film, and um, Kristen Wiig kind of like takes him under her wing and starts kind of like trying to like get him accustomed back to society while she's also kind of dealing with, like, issues with her husband, Luke Wilson. And this was your choice, Adam. I hadn't seen this before. Clearly, you're a fan of Skeleton Twins, right? Yes. Oh, sure. Uh, (laughs) Well, the thing is, I'd seen it once, uh, probably right around when it first came out, and I was really, like, sort of taken aback by Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig's uh, dramatic sort of performances, because, obviously, they are known as... They're both nuts. Like, they're both goofballs. And, I mean just crazy, kinetic, and funny. So it was kind of refreshing to see a dramatic turn. So I think that might have glossed over a lot of the movie itself when I first saw it. I was just sort of really impressed with them. Uh, My opinion on it has changed greatly (laughs) Uh, uh, over time. Uh, I still do think Bill Hader and Chris Wigg are quite good in it. To me, this is the definition of a art house style independent movie that really wants you to know it's an arty movie that it's really got a message or it just it it, it ultimately comes off sort of pretentious at this point oh god i'm so glad you said that <laughs> um because i mean as i mentioned this is my first time seeing it though i'd heard a lot of great things obviously because my big sort of introduction to snl was uh these particular cast members era I had heard a lot about Skeleton Twins being like, oh, this was like, you know, their first dramatic effort. And a lot of SNL cast members kind of try and do that. Everyone, you know, like around the same time as Ghostbusters, Bill Murray was trying to do Razor's Edge, which is a movie no one remembers. Yes. <laughs> right. I would say I don't hate Skeleton Twins necessarily, but it does kind of feel like a sort of show me performance thing for Kristen Wiig and Bill Hader. Where it's like, oh, no, we can do dramatic stuff. We can do, like, really serious stuff. 
But at the same time, like, the moments where this movie kind of, like, feels electric is when they're kind of doing shticky stuff. I agree. Like, when they're lip-syncing together and stuff like that. That's when Right, really the, the, the big uh, Jefferson Starship bit. Uh, I do yeah. agree. It's, like, really fun. Or um, there's just all the general stuff when they're in, like, a dentist office and they're, like, high on the... Mm-hmm. Um, and all that stuff. I think that's that's fun, but at the same time, it's one of those weird movies where, like, I prefer the second act over the first and third, which is weird. Because typically the second act is where things kind of feel dragging. I'm like, okay, we're kind of dragging our feet to the finale. But, like, the second act stuff where, like, they feel more like siblings is the stuff that I like the most. As opposed mm-hmm. to just, like, the, the setup is so labored and the finale feels like it's... The, the whole script kind of feels like it's kind of trying to really tie everything together in a bow, as opposed to, like, feel really, like, authentic in the way that it wants to be. And I think that it's it kind of just feels like it's symptomatic of a lot of, like, this era in particular of, like, Sundance movies. This was this premiered at Sundance originally. It feels really calculating when it wants to feel off the cuff. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's 100% accurate. Um, you know, some of the side performances go, too. Like, I like seeing Ty Burrell pop up. when he. I think he's a very capable character actor. Uh, you know, Luke Wilson's quite good in it, too. And also, kind of ultimately... They're both kind of shitty people, too. Bill Hader and Chris Wink, they, they're not, like, necessarily bad people, but they, they, they're kind of shitty. They do shitty things, you know, and it's it, it's hard to get behind either one, let alone the both of them together. Like, it, it's nice that, you know, it's a sibling thing and they're trying to sort of bring each other up and reconnect and all that stuff. You know, they have this huge falling out and everything, but ultimately I find myself not kind of caring. Like, I'm just like, okay... Like, it's okay. It, it, it goes through the paces. It, like mm-hmm. you said, it feels like a typical sort of Sundance movie. It goes through all the paces it, it a movie like this typically does. There's tragedy. There's heartbreak. There's, you know, suicide attempt. There's uh, family rekindling. There's, you know, jokey scenes. For some reason, Tyrell Bill Hader sort of relationship angle, which I don't think was necessary for the story. I really don't. I mean, I get that's part of what leads Bill Hader to maybe try to kill himself or why he's been on drugs and things like that. But it's still like, it just feels icky for no reason. Oh well, yeah. Especially like this was a movie where like I'm watching and I'm like, okay, they were like, there's a bit of an age difference, but fine. But then I find out like the circumstances. I'm like, Oh no, we're doing this. You're right. <laughs> we're I doing agree. this. Okay. <laughs> um, but to get back to at least like the sort of them being kind of shitty to each other, it's interesting because this prompted me to rewatch Bridesmaids which I hadn't mm-hmm. rewatched since the movie came out originally. And I remember having kind of issues with that movie at the time it came out because Kristen Wiig kind of acts in a way where it's like, oh, she's kind of a shitty person. Like, yeah, she's just... Character. Yeah, yeah. Right, but at the very least, like, especially rewatching, I'm like, okay, she feels shitty, but in a way where it's like, you kind of feel that internally, even though you don't express it externally, like Kristen Wiig does, like, at the bridal shower mm-hmm. and stuff like that. It, it, it feels right. like it's speaking to a lot of things that you would feel as, like, someone who has petty jealousies just as a person. I think this movie's trying to get something deeper than that, but it feels kind of hollow. Yeah, I agree. I, I absolutely agree, because the differences in Bridesmaids, they gave her character more of a sympathetic backstory, you mm-hmm. know, where she had this bakery with her husband, and he left, the bakery closed. You know, her and her mom are kind of, like... On the outs a little bit. Her only friend, her her main, main friend that's been with her forever is, you know, getting married and sort of moving on and even moving to a different part of town and all that. Like, they give her reasons to sympathize with her even when she's doing kind of 
real selfish things. There's a bit more complexity to it as opposed to here. It's it's sort of paper thin. Like they give you, you know, you have this happen, this happen, this happen, this happen, and they don't really give you a chance to sort of invest in the consequences of, you know, sort of the circumstances that they were a part of. Like you're just like, eh, okay. Yeah, I mean, it feels weird kind of given, like, Bill Hader's trying to play, like, he's playing, like, a queer character, and he's, you know, going through all this, like, big issues about, like, depression and suicide and feeling regret about your marriage and stuff like that, but it never really feels like it's investing whole hog in any of those issues. It just feels like it's kind of addressing those briefly, but then kind of masking and like, oh, we're kind of quirky indie, even though also at the same time we have, like, big SNL cast members and, like, Luke Wilson and Ty Burrell, who was on a big sitcom at the time as our stars. It feel, it's, it's a, a weird sort of, like, pseudo-indie movie in a way that I, I've, I've never been a huge fan of those kind of movies where it's like, oh, we're small independent, but yeah, you have big people in your movie. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think, again, you're 100% correct. Um, it had a pretty good, like, critical sort of reception and even fan reception when it came out, but nobody, this movie sort of, I think the cracks have, have shown in this movie quite a bit. It's, it's rating has gone down. Everything's gone down with it. Like I said, I, I really do think that, uh, hater and wig do turn in really strong performances, uh, especially with the little, the kind of that they're given to do. They're sort of given just arch archetypes and they had to explore that. And, uh, I I think that, that, they both do very good jobs. I mean, they've both gone on to do better work for sure. But I, I can, I understand why someone like a Bill Hader or a Kristen Wiig at this time would have taken a role like this. Like you said, just to show, like, hey, no, we, we can do more. We can do more. We can do more. And I think that was maybe what they were relying on a little too much with this movie. Like that, it would be just the Kristen Wiig and the Bill Hader sort of amazement to see them be dramatic and not really maybe take another pass at the script. Maybe add a little more sort of weight to some of it. I mean, that's saying a lot. It's, you know, there's two suicide attempts, but still, just nah, I don't know. No, I I agree with you. I think it would feel like a much worse movie if not for this cast. And it's not just Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig, who I do agree no, with. No. I, I think are pretty fun together. They have like a sort of brotherly sisterly chemistry in a way that's engaging. I think particularly, like you mentioned, the uh, sort of bit where they uh, lip sync to Jefferson Starship, I think is a lot of fun. Um, but also, I think it just comes from a lot of, like, their dedication to characters. Like, even on SNL, like, I was always a fan of, like, Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig when they were together. I think particularly I loved whenever they did, like, the Vincent Price Halloween sketches. Mm -hmm. When Kristen Wiig was Judy Garland. Always fun. Yes. <laughs> when she'd show up against uh, Bill Hader's Vincent Price. I think here, it's more of like they're kind of trying to make a meal out of measles sort of ingredients. And they do a pretty good job of it, honestly. It makes them watchable. Um, but even then, I think also the rest of the cast doing like, weirdly, this is one of the few, like, non-Wes Anderson, Luke Wilson performances I like in mm -hmm. a movie. I agree. They could have easily made that character, like, the worst. Where he plays, like, the husband of Kristen Wiig... You would feel like, oh, he's probably going to be doing something awful behind her back or something. Like, he seems nice, but he's going to be just really a piece of shit when you dig down into it. It's like, no, he's a nice guy. He doesn't, like, get... He's not on the same wavelength of, like, Kristen Wiig and Bill Hader because they're siblings. But he right. feels like a cool dude who accepts, like, Bill Hader for who he is and is willing to accept him into his home and all this other stuff. And especially even, like, the 
the whole monologue he gives about like, oh yeah, it feels like my balls exploded. Like, look there, my balls over there on that side of the wall and on this side <laughs> of the wall. Like, you you feel for that dude, especially even when Kristen Wiig reveals like, oh, I've been cheating on you this whole time. Like, he reacts in a way that's not like horrible to her, but in the same way, feels totally human. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, how, how else are you going to react in that situation? And, and like, they really could have gone further with it and like you said like they could have made him you know hit her or he's you know having multiple multiple affairs or things like that and they didn't they just made him kind of like a boring sort of average vanilla dude you know and uh i agree i absolutely love luke wilson this i think it's a very sort of understated performance uh, as much as luke wilson can turn in ultimately you kind of feel bad for him yeah exactly i just like i feel so much for that dude, even though, he, like you mentioned, he's kind of vanilla, he's kind of just, like, plain. But at the same time, he doesn't feel like he's, like, dismissive of people. Like, even when there's a great bit in the middle of the Jefferson Starship, like, lip-sync bit, where Bill Hader tries to get him to join in, and he's just like, oh, you crazy kid. And he's just like, he doesn't want to, like, intrude on this moment, because he knows it's, like, a brother-sister moment. But he's just like, oh, you, you kids are fun. I'm gonna leave. <laughs> exactly. And I also think for his little bit of a role in it, Boyd Holbrook works really well, too. Right, as the swimming instructor who Kristen Wiig has an affair with at a certain point. Um, right. I mean, it's a weird thing where, like, I can get why she would be attracted to him. He's tattooed, and he's kind of like a bad boy. It's like the exact opposite sure. of Luke Wilson. Like, I totally get it. Why he would be Makes her feel young. Right. Type of deal. Right, absolutely. And even, like, a Ty Burrell, I think, is doing the best he can with, if you aren't aware, the whole point of his character, he was a former teacher of Bill Hader's who apparently at a certain point, uh, when Wolf, when uh, Bill Hader was apparently like a teenager, they had sex at a point where he was kind of discovering himself. Um, and that's super fucked up. And yes. they kind of vaguely bring up how fucked up that is. But also, I think the resolve of that is so poorly put together. Yeah, absolutely. You could have really done something with that and just sort of put it into focus because that's something that absolutely happens and it fucks people's lives up. You know, and, and the, you could have had there really be some weight to sort of the, the resolve of that whole thread. And it's kind of just like, nah. Krista Wig yells at him at a bar and then he just tells him, I don't want to see you anymore, basically. And that's it. You really could have done something with that. Yeah, and Bill Hader also, like, the weird resolve where, like, he goes over to Ty Burrell's house, and they have, like, an argument with each other, and then Ty Burrell's like, oh my god, you're so great. You were such a great, like, writer when you were a kid. I could never deserve you. It's like, for a movie that's trying to feel like, oh, this is super realistic, it's like, that's not a real reaction someone would have. <laughs> like, no. no. Not at all. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 you know, they can't. they can all be winners, you know what I mean? Right. But the thing about this one is it's just really kind of fucking bland when you get all down to it. We, we've had this happen before where like our good pick isn't necessarily all that we dreamed of it being necessarily. And that's fine because I can see the good in this movie. Like I also would say the fact that like they kind of live in this weird sort of like uh, New York, uh, like upstate New York suburb kind of area where they originally grew up and everything. And you kind of get like the sense of family. Like I like the scene where they go on their weird little Halloween trip with uh, Bill Hader mm. and Kristen Wiig, and they kind of, like, go, like, oh, man, Dad loved the Haunted Hayride and all this other stuff, and them kind of reminiscing about their original lives, and also even, like, the Headless Horseman dude popping up. It's like, get the fuck away from me. <laughs> get your dick. Like, there's fun moments like that where I would say this movie is entirely watchable, 
as when we're recording, it's on Amazon Prime. It's not, like, a, a terrible sit. But also, I kind of see where, like, it's a place in these two's careers with Kristen Wiig and Bill Hager. Because, like, I think they they were both extremely talented people on SNL. And I feel like this is a movie that kind of had to happen in order for them to keep on going from here. Because Bill Hader, I think, has had such an interesting, diverse career. And I loved him on SNL. He was, like, obviously, like, Stefan. This feels like an evolution of, like, that kind of character. Or even, like, it feels like an evolution of, like, even he has done more dramatic work. And Kristen Wiig especially has done that in more, like, actually indie movies. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it feels like... This was a necessary step, but not necessarily a great marker in their careers either. And I think that's totally fucked. You know, it, this was sort of the test run, it feels like, uh, for what they could do. And, uh, yeah, I mean, for that, it's, you know, it is what it is. It's not necessarily one that I'd be like, oh, you, if you like Bill Hayer or Chris Wake, you got to see the Skeleton Twins. I don't think I would go that far with it. But, I mean... I don't want to call it harmless either. It, it just, it exists. Like if you see it and then you saw it, it's not going to, I don't think ruin your day or anything like that. It's just, it is what it is. No, really. I think the only harmful thing really comes about. Is when, the like, tiger have... also. I mean, there's that, but I think there's also like the uh, sort of resolution of the movie where it's like, oh, Kristen Wiig has a suicide attempt and then Bill Hader saves her and then you see it comes full circle because she, like, kind of helped him out after his suicide attempt. Like, they make suicide into, like, a weird bow for the movie. Right. I agree. That ending of the movie, it's so abrupt. It just feels like, oh, we resolved everything? Or we're, we're at this point, like, I think it wants to have the thing where it's like, okay, they're two fucked up people. They're both in, like, messed up points in their lives. It's not going to necessarily work out for them right away. But after this, they're going to progress and be better people and all this other stuff. I don't feel like it accomplishes, like anything there with that ending it's basically this the simple idea of an ending where like as long as they stick together they'll be all right and like okay did we have to have a, a second suicide attempt and all that in order to get that point across i i don't think so i mean to quote the song that they lip-synced at nothing's gonna stop them now oh, <laughs> so so on the nose and stupid people say they're crazy oh <laughs> Like I said, man, I was all stoked about this when I picked it. I'm like, oh, yeah, man, you'll, it's a good movie. Oh, you haven't seen it? You like it? You like it? And it's like, fuck, was I wrong? <laughs> I mean, again, I, I don't think it's terrible. Uh, it's just, it's so just cookie-cutter, overdramatic, pretentious bullshit. You, you know what? I'll, I'll say this. I think the scene that kind of, like, really won me over a bit more after, like, the first setup stuff, when they hang out with their mother, played by Joanna Gleason. Yeah, that was pretty good. That feels like a weird, like, actual relationship people would have with, like, a mom who kind of has, like, these other aspirations has moved on to, like, a sort of different corner of her life where they still feel, like, kind of complicated about it. That stuff felt really real. I think the movie approaches moments like that. But at the same time, then it kind of, like, wears off. That's why I would say it's more of, like, an uneven movie to me. I don't hate this movie. But I don't feel at the same time it certainly accomplishes what it's trying to do in terms of speaking to, like, a deeper truth about, like, suicide and kind of getting to a point like where you kind of feel this depression, kind of feel like a shittiness in your life, but you progress a bit beyond it. I, I think it's approaching that, but never quite achieves it. I think that's absolutely perfect and good final thoughts, even. Well, yeah, for me, I'm, do you have anything else to say yourself? <laughs> I, I mean, again, like I said, it's just, it is what it is. If you want to see it, like I said, a good jump off point for sort of Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig's more dramatic turns, then it's there. That it, It's the, the groundwork's here. Uh, sort of the blueprint of what they, 
you know, would later do better with. I, I want to say perfect, but definitely turn in better performances. Really good, uh, you know, supporting cast. Everybody's capable in it. It doesn't look ter- ultimately terrible or anything, it, but it's just, yeah, meh. You've seen versions of this movie a hundred times, especially if you do follow independent sort of cinema. You've seen all the the story beats and plot points here done a hundred times. Just this collects like five of them and puts in the movie and you're supposed to give a shit. And ultimately, in my opinion, I didn't give a shit. I'm glad we could all be very open and personal with this, Adam. This is a great therapy session that we're all having here on this particular episode of Double Edge Devil Bill. But... We have another film to talk about in a moment. Oh, for if I'm going to need therapy after this one. <laughs> That's true. We're going to need a lot of therapy. But first, <laughs> here's an ad for Neo so you can queue up right after ours. What's new on the 42 cast? Let's ask my co-hosts. We're talking about Doctor Who. Comic book shows and movies. And we're talking about all things Star Trek. <laughs> and so much more. Check us out on Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and iTunes. It's only on the 42 cast. Your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. So, Nathan, when are we finally talking Babylon 5? So, let's get into our bad feature, Master of Disguise. In a place of mystery, one family's extraordinary power will be left in the hands of one man. I'm going to be a Master of Disguise. I'm going to be a... Am I not curly enough for the curdle club? (laughs) The master of disguise. This is what you're doing. This is what I want you to do. So, Master of Disguise came out August 2nd, 2002, and was a big uh, sort of vehicle for Dana Carvey, who was a big prominent cast member in like the mid-80s to like mid-90s was, um, you know, sort of like a very much a favorite cast member to use on that show in particular because of his impressions and the church lady and all this other stuff. Adam, are you a fan of Dana Carvey? Uh, uh, um, okay. I was a fan of Dana Carvey on the show. But you gotta figure, I was also like 9, 10 years old when I first started, started and he was hilarious to me. You know, he was wacky, could do all impressions, he, you know, would do the funny dances, he was Garth in Wayne's World. One of the first stand-ups I ever saw was a Dana Carvey stand-up, and I thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Now, I've aged, you know, 20, 25 years, and he's still doing the same fucking shtick that he was doing when I was 9 or 10 years old. And he can't turn it off. Like, I'll see him on interviews and stuff, and he's just constantly doing impressions. Like, he cannot not do his impressions, even when... Nobody asks for him. They're just trying to have a conversation for him. He's like, yeah, well, you know, if I uh, could you imagine what Donald Trump would say? And he does a Donald Trump impression or something like that. And it's like, and it's just not funny anymore. It's kind of depressing. So by the time this had come out, I the Dana Carvey ship for me had fully sailed already. Again, humor is subjective. I know. Right. Uh, fuck me. Some Give people me. might think he's the greatest in the world. But I, I personally, yeah, no, I'm good. Dana Carvey is sort of like the textbook example to me of somebody who is phenomenal on SNL, given like how much it's about, hey, let's have you play like some weird character or let's have you do an impression or whatever. And ultimately it kind of comes out as, oh, you're really kind of hogging the spotlight in a way that 
doesn't work after you leave the show, for the most part. Like, I like him as Garth in the Wayne's World movies, for example. That's probably the first time sure. I saw him in anything. And he's quite fun there. But then, like, after that, he had had the Dana Carvey show, which I would recommend if you haven't seen the Hulu documentary Too Funny to Fail, which is a fascinating documentary about sort of the legacy and failure of that particular show. And how it kind of jump-started the careers of, like, Steve Carell and Stephen Colbert and Robert Smigel and Louis C.K. Um, but it's kind of like a weird, interesting kind of point in all their careers. Um, and then he kind of took a bit of a break because he wanted to raise his sons. And then he did The Master of Disguise, which mm-hmm. is what we're talking about now. And I remember seeing this at the time, actually, in the theater, which I had thought, you know, kind of the perception of this movie is that it was... Such a terrible movie. It must have been a failure. Actually, for a $16 million budget, it made $43.4 million. Which is not a failure at all, actually. That's pretty successful, considering. I think a lot of it has to do with... We kind of talked about this off mic before the show, Adam. This movie was incessantly advertised when it came out. Non-fucking-stop. Am I not turtly enough for the Turtle Club thing? I can see that in my fucking dreams still. And I know there was talks of them making a sequel to this for like the longest time, wasn't there? I didn't read up about that necessarily. I think it's an example of like, I think it's an example of a movie that was like decently successful, but not necessarily like critically acclaimed enough to where like, okay, we'll hedge our bets. Because we're not going to like waste money on a sequel no one's going to see. Yeah, well, Joe Dirt 2 exists. Look, if a Master of Disguise sequel comes out in, like, 2022, 20th anniversary, maybe. Sure. But is Pistachio Disguise comes back into our lives. Oh. Sure. Um, but, but no, I think this is just a movie that was, like, really heavily put together. And when you watch the movie, it feels that way in terms of, like, this is probably meant for a slightly more adult audience, but it feels like they cut it down severely to make it for, like, oh, it's like a family audience kind of thing. Because this movie, without credits, is 65 minutes long? And then the credits extend it severely, yeah. Because it's an 80-minute long movie overall, but all the credits have, like, oh, here's deleted scenes we didn't include, here's the cast members dancing, here's them doing bloops. Which is a common thing, obviously, with comedies in particular. Uh, sure, like, sure. If, if they want to, like, make it seem like, we had fun making it, even though you didn't have fun watching it and laughing at all. Um, they include bloopers, for that, but that's like one of five different things the credits do. Like, there's a whole nother character that wasn't even in this movie amongst the several ones that Dana Carvey does, where he's like some weird Edwin style, like over the top flamboyant character. Like, oh my god, I can't believe what I'm doing here. And he's like in a fat suit. Um, among yeah. several other characters he does in the actual movie. Uh, and that's the thing is, this movie is definitely an exercise in him trying to do a bunch of characters, which makes sense given around this time, Mike Myers is doing the same thing. And if you hear anything yeah. about, like, sort of, like, backstage issues, like, apparently him and Mike Myers, after the Wayne's World movies, kind of have, like, a, a divergent point, and Mike Myers was, like, the more successful one, and it feels like, this movie kind of feels like him trying to cash in on that, down to the point of there's a point where he does a Shrek and Donkey impression uh. in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which at that point, I'm like, hmm, him doing any Murphy impression feels kind of offensive. And later on, he does another character. <laughs> who's the Tony Montana? No. Um, there's the point where he does the steak chart. Oh, the, the, the Hindu character. Right, where he's in brown face and everything. Yeah. Uh, um, with the crossed eyes and everything. Yeah, so this is also 
kind of in the step of like along with like a Mike Myers doing those kind of characters. Um, it, but it, it feels also like he's definitely kind of like the influence would have been like those old Peter Sellers comedies back from like the sixties. Where he would do a bunch of characters, and you know, sometimes you have your Doctor Strange loves, but then there's the other ones like where there's one where he plays an Indian character like the whole time. Yes, brown face, and this feels like it's kind of influenced by that and a few others, like the, the Fu Manchu movie he did as well in the eighties, which yes. at that time that was offensive, and then this comes out in two thousand two and has him Dana Carvey in brown face, so. Yep. But even without that, like, offensive material to, like, people who've actually been, like, subject to horrible stereotypes like that, uh, this movie's still awful, because it's cut down so severely that I'm not really sure where, like, the actual Master of Disguise thing comes into, like, any kind of actual reason for being. Because, like, the basic premise, if you're not aware of this awful piece of shit movie, um, is that uh, Dana Carvey plays Pistachio Disguise. An Italian man who works at his uh, super Italian parents' restaurant. And those super Italian parents are played by James Brolin and Edie McClurg. Yep. Who are the most Italian actors I could have thought of to play Papa and Mama Disguise. When I saw Amityville Horror, I was like, yep, that guy one day is going to be an Italian stereotype. Right, and especially with Edie McClurg in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you're like, oh, this Midwestern lady? Totally Italian. Completely. Yep. Totally makes sense. Right, yes. And uh, back in his earlier days, Papa Disguise used to be a master of disguise, which vaguely involves him dressing up as different people and implying that he's like those particular people. Like, the opening is him stealing something from Brent Spiner, who's our main villain, in the late 70s. And the whole gimmick is he's dressed up like Bo Derek, and Bo Derek's actually there. So Mm -hmm. he's like in a Bo Derek mask and bodysuit. But then later on, when he ends up getting kidnapped, Pistachio needs to become Master of Disguise, as assisted by his grandfather, played by Harold Gould. And whenever, like, Pistachio dresses up, it's clearly Dana Carvey and, like, makeup. So there's that weird disconnect. Anytime that, like, James Rowland dresses up, he's like, oh, I'm, I'm Jesse Ventura, I'm Jessica Simpson, right. I'm Michael Johnson. And it's actually those particular celebrities appearing. And then he takes off a mask all of a sudden. It's like, oh, you're that person. But yet, we have just... It's an excuse for Dana Carvey to do impressions. That's really... That's the, yeah, that's the whole point. It's yeah. an impression. It's an hour-long impression reel for Dana Carvey. It is so unfucking funny in every way. Mm-hmm. It, it looks really fucking bad. The soundtrack, it's just the most annoying shit ever. Excuse me, they have three theme songs for the titular Master of Disguise. Uh, yeah, I know. It's such a great soundtrack. Jennifer Esposito, like, why, why, who cares? She's such a throwaway, just, she's hot character. Well, no, 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 the, the whole point of her character is that she actually looks super hot, but the subversion is that, you know, uh, Dana Carvey and Harold Gould don't find her attractive because she doesn't have a big butt. That's right. the whole joke with her character. Because it's like, yep. oh, don't worry, we're going to, like, sexually harass this character by talking constantly about how, like, oh, you don't have a big butt. Like, Mama used to have so many things that are there. But also this movie's kind of made for kids? I don't know what you're doing. Right, because then you'll have Brent Spiner's whole thing is he farts. Yeah, that's the, literally the only joke about his villain character is after every yes. scene, like, he says something evil, then he laughs, and then he farts. Yep, he farts scene. after he laughs. That's it. I'm, we're not exaggerating at all, by the way. That's... Every joke with that character is that he farts at the end of, like, a big maniacal speech. Yep. And 
just, 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 uh, it's, uh, as I've said hundreds of times to me, bad comedies are the worst sort of movies to try to slog through. Because if it's not funny, it's torture. Especially when someone is trying to make you laugh, it becomes embarrassing at a point. Uh, where you just feel embarrassed for the person trying to make you laugh because it's just not connecting. This is that for an hour and five minutes. It is so bad and so hard to watch and so hard to get through. And none of it looks convincing. None of it looks good. Like even the idea of, you know, okay, it's Dana Carvey in makeup or whatever, blah, 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 blah. Then you get the turtle suit guy. Yes, which is the only legacy of this movie at all. Is the mm-hmm. turtle suit guy because that's become a meme at this point. Is that he'll show up and they'll be like, "Oh, he looks like Mitch McConnell." Hey, he doesn't look like Mitch McConnell. Don't insult the turtle club guy like that. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. But him with the fucking like the mouth and the giant suit and everything, like he took it literal. And it's so stupid. He'd be shot the second he walked in the, in the club. Let me get this fucking guy out of here. Like what? What is the point of any of this? It, it feels like he wants to be a spy thing. Because, like, say with an Austin Powers, we talked about right. Gold Member before, for example. Oh, like with, but but like at least with like the Austin Powers series, you know me like, oh, he's a secret agent, so mm-hmm. we know exactly what like his deal is. He has to be like he's covert or whatever, and he's from the '60s, but then he comes to the '90s or some kind of conflict there. Great, that's very simple. It's a good sort of vague tree to hang a bunch of jokes on. Right, you could do a lot with that. As opposed to, there's no structure to this because like. If you're going to say, like, oh, the disguises are, like, weird, kind of, like, outside of the CIA or FBI, whatever, agents that are trying to do some, like, freelance shit, these people don't disguise themselves very well, especially, like, Pistachio. Like, he's trained to be a master of disguise. Every single disguise is drawing attention to itself, like the Tony Montana one, or the Quint one, or any of the other ones that he does. Like, there's no basic thing that would hang the idea of like, oh, this is the reason why he does disguises. Instead, it just ends up being an excuse to do a bunch of fucking sketches. And none of them are funny. This is one of the most miserable experiences I've had watching a movie for the show. This is one of the worst things I've ever watched for the show. Now, is this the first time you've seen it? No, I saw this in the theater. Because my dad was a huge Dana Carvey fan. And he really, really wanted to see it. And admittedly, I had been roped in by all this, the trailers because I was a kid. And it's like, oh, Dana Carvey's going to be funny, whatever. And I don't remember liking it that much at the time. And I like it so much less now. <laughs> so much less. My patience was thin at the time. It's much thinner now for this bullshit. Uh, yeah. And also, you know, as you said with, like, the Austin Powers things or whatever, at least... The villain has, as stupid as it is, a definitive plan. You know, he's going to hold the world for ransom. Yeah. He wants to take over the world. This, his goal is to just steal famous treasure. Like, he's a collector. That's it. Right. Like, oh, here's the Constitution, the Liberty Bell, and all this other shit. It's the dumbest fucking shit. And like you said, if there's some, like, secret sect of basically fucking, like, a super team, uh, the disguises where they... They keep, you know, the world's balance behind the shadows and blah, blah. Fucking, what? Also, just another thing. Like, look, we've done plenty of bad Italian jokes on the show. I'm Italian. Oh, my God. I can't we've imagine. D- yeah. we've, done, we've done plenty of stupid, like, it's a me, a Mario, mama, me, a pizzeria, all that bullshit. But that's the dialogue in this movie, basically. Right, right, right. That's the thing. At the very least, we don't make that the entire premise of our fucking show. 
right? <laughs> like yeah, we that's could. that's fine too. We we could, but we're better than that. We're not better than a lot of things, but we're better than that. Yeah. This movie like hangs itself when it's not doing impressions on like, oh mama, look a pop, they're a gun, I'm a Dina Carvey, look at me. And I'm doing a better Italian accent than he does in the fucking movie, which is saying yeah. a lot. Yeah, because his is like super high pitched and shit too. It's That's so true. bad. He's super and he's weirdly trying to play like I think a mid twenties something, even though at the time he was like pushing fifty. Oh, and it's so clearly obvious. Right, and I'm not sure what exactly they're doing with this character. Well, like I think they're implying that he's got mental sort of handicaps, too. Or that he's a child, actually. He's playing, like, a teenager or something. I don't know what uh, they're doing. I don't know. Because he also has a weird friendship with, like, Jennifer Espino's son, who keeps popping up. That's their way of tying it to the kids. Oh, God, this is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. I mean, honestly, it, <laughs> yep. it it's so fucking unbelievably bad and unfunny and offensive and just oh my god look at least like boat trip Mm -hmm. well it's not funny at least you have more to talk about where it's because of the you know the gay cruise and you got a pretty funny roger moore in it and everything and it's also sort of the downswing of cuba gooding jr's career and things like that this is just oh it's like nightmare fuel Right, yeah, because after this, Dana Carvey doesn't have much of a career necessarily. He doesn't even appear in a movie again until Jack and Jill, of course. Well, there you go. So, step up. Right, of course, yes, yes. And he's kind of, like, come back. I've seen him on Colbert a couple times, and he's appeared as Garth a couple times with Mike Myers as well. Yeah, he was on The Comedians and Car Getting Coffee. Right. With Jerry Seinfeld, which the whole time all he did was shtick. But, still, oh, fucking hell. And, like, I also want to say, like, he seems at least, like, a nice enough person. Like, on that Too Funny to Fail show, like, he seemed like at least he was, like, a guy who, like, cared about his kids and also cared about, yeah. like, the, uh, the careers of other people. And he seems like he at least, like, cares about what he does whenever he actually does, like, either this shtick or the comedy specials that he does, his stand-up, all that. He feels at least like he's a very committed performer. Um, it just feels like in this particular case, the commitment was ill-advised on, like, any conceivable level. It's so unfunny. I don't know, and I, you know, I, I know a lot of people. I'm, 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 I'm really popular. <laughs> right. uh, <laughs> I don't know anybody who likes this movie. I have never met one person who's like, oh yeah, it was pretty funny. Everyone I know is like, holy fuck, that was the worst thing. So the fact that it even made money, it, well, we know why that the fucking down your throat advertising, but still. This is this is egregiously bad. This is going to go down in the fucking annals of history as one of the worst wide-release comedies of all time. No, I mean, this is, like, to put it in perspective, this is on the IMDb bottom 100, and that, yeah. like, takes a lot. <laughs> that takes a lot to make IMDb users hate you that fucking much, because they'll like anything, <laughs> quite frankly. Yeah, I know. What's his name? Uh, Mike Nelson from Mystery Science Theater. Uh, right. And riff tracks. This guy watches the worst movies ever as a job. That's what he does. He said this is the third worst film he's ever seen. Yes. That's saying fucking something. This guy has watched everything you can think of. For perspective, the movies that this apparently beat are It's Pat at number four and Chairman of the Board at number five. Oh, It's Pat. Oh, you know what? I'd rather watch It's Pat over this. 
Interesting. Okay, and then the movies that were worse than this one were Junior at number two and Little Nicky at number one. Junior with Arnold? Junior with Arnold, yes. Oh, fucking hell. We covered that one, too. Good. What are we doing to ourselves? <laughs> oh, yeah, no, Little Nicky. Oh, God. I, I, You know what? I'll watch Little Nicky over this, too. Right, because Little Nicky at least has ambition to it. But you get to see a Harvey Keitel really hamming it up. You get to see, you know, just a bunch of silly shit. Right, and and also like they, there's like big weird special effects moment in that movie, and like there's there's like there's a lot of stuff there that at least Adam Sandler was kind of trying, and like I'll take that over like when Adam Sandler doesn't necessarily work. Put put a pin in that for SNL cast member oh, like man. topics we might do. But I would say like this definitely deserves more than I think. Aside from maybe Junior, more than any of those other ones, I think this is worse. And maybe appreciate Skeleton Twins more. <laughs> yeah. At least that's, like, trying for something. Versus this movie, like, it's so poorly put together. There's the point where, like, he goes to Brent Spiner's party the first time, and he plays Tony Montana. And then he keeps popping up at that party after getting kicked out, like, at least, like, two or three times as, like, different characters. That's how, like, poorly put together this movie is. Like, he keeps just, like, popping up, even though he looks so clear like Dana Carvey. Like, anybody who fucking sees this guy is like, oh, it's Dana Carvey. That's who this fucking is right here. Like, it's it's baffling. It just feels so much like this is such a poorly put together movie, down to the point where, like, the big sort of climax, where, like, Brent Spiner's like, you're gonna rue the day you did this to me, and I'm gonna, look, here's James Brolin with my face super glued in his face. And then you're going to, like, try and get him to come out of his shell, and you do. And then, like, oh, everything's wrapped up, voiceover, everything's wrapped up, everything's fine. Now we're going to have an awkward scene where Brent Spiner's at, like, some club in Costa Rica. And fucking Dana Carvey's dressed up like George W. Bush, because it's 2002. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Lots of topical (laughs) references as well. Oh, yeah. Really going to hold up. Right. Yeah. (laughs) This is a strong statement, all right? Yes. This is the worst film we've watched for this show because it is so hard to even stay with it, even in 60 minutes. Like, Wired is really bad and Wired is offensive, but at least Wired, you're like, what the fuck is going on here? Speaking of SNL cast members, Wired, the John Belushi biopic about John Belushi dying. And be, having like a weird uh, fucking, see, like, it's a wonderful life thing. Michael Chiklis in his debut. Yes. Uh, but at least that you're watching, you're like, this is fucking, I cannot believe you're doing this. Like, what is happening here? At least it's, it's a bad on a fascinating level. This is just unapologetically just atrocious. Uh, every aspect of this movie is bad. There's not one redeeming thing. Period. Not even on a, a like a, a morbid curiosity level. Because, like you mentioned, it, it's definitely like it's Dana Carvey trying to have full reign to do his impressions and stuff. And you know, other SNL cast members have done similar things where it's like, hey, we're gonna, I'm gonna like do a sort of like a egocentric, like here's me displaying all my talents kind of thing. Um, but none of them feel sort of as slimly put together as this one does. That's just like another thing. It's like Wired is terrible, but it feels at least like a movie. This doesn't feel even like a movie or a TV special or anything that would resemble a product I would put out to people to see. Like, if you told me, hey, this is something Dana Carvey had on his shelf, but they never released it, and he kind of hid away in his vault until he died and then it got released, I would believe that. Uh, yeah, I, I absolutely would believe that. Over at screening in 2,000 theaters and making $46 million. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Uh, it's just... 
Ooh. What? <laughs> do, do you have any final thoughts to add, Adam? I think we're kind of running on steam. It, it's, it's absolutely just atrocious in absolutely every level possible. It's not funny. There's nothing about this that makes me like even laugh at all. It's offensive several times when it doesn't even need to be. It's just really, really, really fucking bad. It's the unfunniest film I've, I, I, I might have ever seen. Uh, I'm sure there's other ones that I could put right up here with it. But it's literally the point where anytime I talk about bad comedy movies uh, with many people, because, again, I'm very popular, this one comes up almost instantly uh, amongst the group. Like, oh, yeah, that was bad. Oh, that was bad. Oh, do you remember the master of fucking disguise? And there's an audible just sort of like, oh, in the group. And you can feel everybody sort of re- like peeling back and going into the fucking corner. Like, like nobody wants to talk about it. It's the movie that shall not be named. It's the secret shame of many a person who may oh, contribute to that over $40 million gross. Oh, it's so fucking bad. I'd watch Corky Romano over this. Wow. You know, and that's Chris Kattan doing characters. But I'll watch that over this. Mango himself. Yes. Uh, it's in my top three worst shit I've ever fucking seen. It's, if not, number one. This movie has changed me. I'm, I'm getting off social media, and I blame Master of Disguise. Well, in that way, I think Master of Disguise is really a hero now that you say it like that. You're getting off social media because of it. That's true. Thank you, Master of Disguise. Yes, that's for sure. Um, I mean, uh, that there's a lot of truth to that. I'll just say there's also truth in maybe, like, describing certain bits that we haven't, like, gone into full detail about. Like, yeah. there's... The, the, the Indian character I mentioned um, is a snake charmer character, and he literally, like, makes out with his cobra. Yep. Um, as as Dana Carvey's doing, like, a bad Apu-style... Oh, it's even worse. Yeah, it's even it, it's, worse. It's somehow way worse, yeah. yeah. Or you have, like, the Tony Montana character who's like, say hello to my little friend, and it's a little shrunken head. Um, Dana Carvey keeps doing this one bit that his grandfather does where it's like, this is what you're doing, mouth flapping. This is what I want hand. you to do. This is what I want you to do, and he silences the hand. Oh, uh, and he does it over and over. Like, it, it's definitely a movie that's um, not nearly as, like, you can't really describe how terrible it is, but also you should encourage anyone to see it at the same time. Um, it is sort of the epitome of, like you mentioned, a bad, terrible comedy, especially an SNL vehicle. Because, like, even as bad as some of, like, say, the worst of the movies actually based on SNL sketches are, like, none of them are quite as egregious as this one, because at least those had the audacity of, like, oh, hey, it's Pat. Pat was a popular character on SNL played by Julia Sweeney. That was a character that was, like, recurring a lot and people liked to some degree. So they made a movie out of it. They thought it might work because people liked it on the show. Didn't work in a movie. Fine. This is based on, like, Dana Carvey, like, vaguely, like, oh, I did impressions you like that on SNL. It's like, no, we don't want a whole show about it. And some of them aren't even that bad, because he's, like, a good impressionist. But it's just, like, for a whole movie, even 65 minutes long, it's so torturous. And, yeah, I agree. It's maybe the worst of the show, at le- at the very least one of, like, the top three worst we've ever done with the show. Oh, God. Oh, God, I hate this fucking movie so much. Yeah, let's end it there. We hate this movie. <laughs> this movie so has much. broke my spirits. <laughs> right. It, it broke all of us, and uh, we hope it didn't break you out there in the audience. Uh, just don't watch it. Please don't watch it. That's the end of our fun double feature where we really just enjoyed ourselves. And, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. We started off on a high note. We're doing comedy movies with comedy characters. This one's got double suicide, and this one's got offensive stereotypes. Shit. 
Right, yes. But uh, let's go into our feedback, uh, because all of you on at DEDVPod shared your thoughts about, uh, hey, what are your favorite, least favorite movies related to whatever topic we're doing? So at DEDVPod on Facebook and Twitter, we asked you about that with SNL cast member vehicles. And uh, first off, we got James Rodriguez, who's been a previous guest on the show, who says, uh, Milk might be a bad choice, but Anchorman never fails to make me laugh. I also love pop star Never Stop Never Stopping, They Came Together, Punch Drunk Love. And I even like the 2016 Ghostbusters film. Um, as for worst, uh, K-19, The Hot Chick, Get Hard, Daddy's Home, and Adam Sandler's filmography, I'll just mention Pixels. Um, Jenny Walker says, Spinal Tap, though I don't know if that counts because SNL came afterward. Um, and then Emily Slade at Why This Film Pod says, Superstar and Ghostbusters 2016 are both wonderful showcases for SNL talent. Remember, like, the salad days where Ghostbusters 2016 was the big thing on the internet have had something to, like, gripe at? Yep, I do. Remember? Yeah, I remember do. that? And, like, I remember there's so much back and forth about, like, oh, like, people are, like, hating on this for because they love the original and they hate women, and then, oh, people are, like, really... Don't want to see a remake because right, they, they love the original. Right, yeah. and there's so much... And then you watch the movie, it's like, it's fine. It's forgettable. It's, it's fine. fine. It's harmless. Yeah. It, it's, it is ultimately, I agree, forgettable, but there are some funny parts in it. But it's just, it is what it is. It exists. Yeah. Like, who cares? So does the original. The original still does, too, by the way. You can still just watch the original. Right. Just because there's a remake doesn't mean, you know, fuck. Just don't watch it. And I'd probably watch you over Ghostbusters 2, which I feel is more disappointing because it has the original cast in it, and it's not nearly as funny. Yeah. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Superstar, I was never really into either. There's a couple funny parts in it, but it's just not for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I love Anchorman. I absolutely love Anchorman. I have a Ron Burgundy tattoo, for God's sakes. But yeah, I mean, I agree with most of those picks. Uh, you know, Adam Sandler, uh, absolutely. Uh, Jesus, he had, I think we even talked about this last night in, in, in quick fashion, but, you know, there's Billy Madison, Happy Gilmore, The Waterboy, and, and then it really starts to start to just fall from there. Like, hell, other than Uncut Gems, which obviously he didn't write or produce or anything. He just stars in it. Uh, but his Happy Madison Productions stuff that he's been putting out or like his his Netflix films. Good God, man. But let's put a pin in that because we might do Adam Sandler at some later point. It's time oh, to put a pin in it. Well, we will. Sure. We, we, we just might. Uh, but you know what? I want to say the Jenny's comment is interesting. Because the Spinal Tap element where, like, Christopher Guest and Billy Crystal and Harry Scherer were later cast members in SNL. Well, Michael McKeon as well. Right, Michael McKeon. That's a weird example where, like, um, at that point in SNL's history, there had been the point where, like, Not Ready for Primetime Players had been around until, like, 1980. Lauren Michaels, like, wasn't involved anymore. And then Dick Ebersol took over and had, like, a bunch of infamous, terrible seasons. Aside from Eddie Murphy, it's a really dark period for that show in the early 80s. Um, and then, like, in the mid-80s, around the time, they, like, Eddie Murphy quit, and Dick Ebersole fired most of the people, and he was like, you know what, let's do proven comedy talents, and have them be on SNL, so that's how you got Christopher Guest, Billy Crystal, Martin Short was on that season, he did, like, Ed Grimley from SCTV mm-hmm. on that season and shit, so that's a weird example where, like, because most people get their start in SNL, and in that case, it was an example of, like, oh, let's get people who are proven and get them on SNL here, and that's just, like, it's a weird example that's, like, never happened again <laughs> for that shit. 
Yeah. I mean, I love Spinal Tap. You know, I think it's fucking great. I, I'd, I'd say Spinal Tap, well, I mean, obviously it birthed Christopher Guest films. Yeah. So that's where he sort of got the, the idea for that. And even just for that, I'm like, hell yeah, I fucking love Spinal Tap because I love those movies. Uh, in fact, they're some of my favorites. You know, that, I, I never even thought of that because for some reason when you think of SNL cast members, I, like you said, I think that's just sort of a blank sort of point for Saturday Night Live, except for Eddie Murphy. Uh, it's like, nah. Like, I never think, oh, Robert Downey Jr. When you think of SNL cast members. Or, like I said, even Julia Lee-Dreyfus. Anthony Michael Hall. I even forget that fucking uh, Belushi was on it, his brother. Right, Jim Belushi. I even forget he, Randy Quaid was on it. You know what right. I mean? I, I forget that these guys did this show. So that's definitely one I don't think of those films uh, when it comes to SNL cast member films. But, I mean, there's there's a lot that, you know, we could have picked that didn't pick, you know. But, of course, we also made a rule of we're not doing, like, the Will Ferrells and the Mike Myers and things like that. Uh, but, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with most of those uh, sort of mentions. Uh, I do not. Uh, Ghostbusters, yeah, it's okay. It is what it is. But even, like, also, the, the thing is with the original Ghostbusters, that was a weird example, I still say, of, like, lightning in a bottle. Where you can never sure. quite recreate that particular thing. Because so you had, like, not just Bill Murray, but Dan Aykroyd. And um, even Harold Ramis was amongst that sort of, like, National Lampoon audience. And even then, like, there's also things like, you know, a Blues Brothers is a... I love Blues Brothers, the movie. But at the same time, like, when it was on SNL, like, I've seen those sketches. And I don't get how that was funny. Because it's just Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi doing fucking standards from blues. And it's not funny. It's just them showing mm. off that they can fucking do it. And it feels sort of like this weird kind of like prom king comedy kind of thing where it's like, oh, we're funny because we're kind of being silly, but we're also showing how cool we are kind of thing. Which I think a lot of that early SNL is kind of guilty of anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. The people that stand out and kind of like do something earnest is when it's people who are like having fun on the show, but also being like really like I can show myself, but I'm not like having an ego about it. That's what like, kind of like gets people's attention. Like even like Bill Hader is a great example of that. Where Bill Hader would kind of like go out and do fun characters, and he'd kind of laugh at points, but it was kind of endearing when he was like doing Stefan and stuff like that. Like you want those kind of cast members to like kind of like stick out and have a long career afterward, like a Bill Hader does, and some other ones unfortunately don't. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there's been how many now that you can think of that left and literally went nowhere. Right. Uh, like we said, Rachel Sands earlier, Chris Kattan. Uh, I mean, David Spade has had a career, but I, I mean, is it anything of note? No, Rob Schneider, same thing. At least some of those people had opportunities that maybe they didn't deserve, like a David Spade or Rob Schneider, versus even others yeah, that's that like, like went full under like an Ellen Clegborne. Remember yeah. her, everybody? No, you don't, because yeah. they didn't give her a fucking chance. Yeah, Anna Gasteyer. I mean, right. Sherry O'Terry didn't just done nothing. No, and she was phenomenal. You know, and, uh, yeah, she, absolutely phenomenal. One of the funniest female cast members ever. Daryl Hammond tried for a while, and then you know it's just it's not going to always work for everybody. And and I'd argue there's more cases of it not working than there are than there is are. You know, for every Will Ferrell or Bill Murray or things like that, you know, you get the guys we already mentioned. But the thing about Bill Murray and Will Ferrell, especially Bill Murray, is he's still churning out good work, like consistently there like he's he's staying relevant in a smart way like he's choosy about kind of what he picks now and everything he, uh, he kind of was back then too you know there has been a couple flops right. but still 
versus even at the around that same like he replaced Chevy Chase, who was in the first season of SNL and then got high bridges about himself and then was successful for a little bit and then everyone realized, Oh, you're a total dick. You are a real scumbag. Yeah, exactly. Wow, that fucking cock. God. Yeah. So anyway, uh, to move on to some other feedback actually we got about our previous episode on the Wachowskis, uh, we got some people here responding like Lance Langford of The Horror Returns says, uh, they're in my top ten directors of all time in general. Um, Jonathan Habdemichael um, said this, and I apologize I missed this when you uh, we posted the original feedback request, Jonathan, but uh, Jonathan says, The Matrix had a double-edged effect on the Wachowskis. Um, its success led the way for Cloud Atlas and Speed Racer. The huge expectation on the sequels, especially Reloaded, really stained public opinion on the Wachowskis for nearly 20 years. With the exception of Jupiter Ascending, every movie the Wachowskis directed after Bound builds a grand world with enough lore to fill a textbook. The Wachowskis' main weakness is naturally conveying the, that textbook of information in less than three hours of a time for a film audience. Um, there is a reason why a Netflix series like Sense8 um, feels like a return to form for Alana and Lily. Very few directors take chances on esoteric and philosophical themes by wrapping them in high-budget genre film. And then Rafe Telsch uh, says, I really appreciate Thomas's take on things toward the end of this episode. I love the Wachowski's films and was waiting to see how angry I'd get over bashing on them. Uh, it never came. You both state your opinions really well and respectfully, but I do agree with Thomas. If you like them, you like them. If you don't, you don't. Not really much is going to change that, at least uh, not from fellow critics. What can I say? I, I absolutely agree with all that feedback. Uh, and, that, and that's one thing, too, I agree with. I expected, even out of myself, to go on a more, like, sort of Wachowski bash. Uh, but I, as we said, like, well, it's, why? I like some of the, I like two of their movies quite a bit. And the rest, it's like, uh, I'm still excited to see what they do next. So... You know, I think they're exciting directors. I think it, there's exciting prospects. I think they have a very sort of uh, unique perspective to bring that, you know, we don't get a lot of, especially in mainstream film. After our episode, even, I'm more excited to uh, watch Wachowski stuff. Yeah, they don't slum it. They don't master it, disguise it. They've never done a quite that. Oh, for fuck's sake. Necessarily, no. No, they haven't. Um, but thank you all for that feedback, and also we want to thank uh, Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarter for the art for our show, and uh, as we've been doing the last couple of weeks, we want to definitely spotlight a charity, and in this case, it's the Emergency Release Fund, uh, which is specifically for people who have been jailed in reference to protests, and especially like in places like New York and other epicenters. Um, protesters might be more likely to be exposed to, like, COVID-19. So this is basically just a big release fund for, like, people who have uh, been in these situations and have been, I think, falsely imprisoned for trying to speak out for their rights. And so we'll have a link in the show notes for that particular charity, and we would hope if you can donate, please do. And if not, you know, at least spread the word around for a good cause. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yes, and uh, you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. And you can also email us, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. 
And if you can, you know, subscribe to us on Patreon, patreon.com slash DEDVpod, where we post up a monthly bonus podcast of some sort for all of you. And also, um, you know, just donating $1 a month, uh, you also get to vote in polls for stuff that we'll be doing in the future on the main feed show here. And uh, right around the time of this is posting, um, there would be a poll out for you to pick our a topic for July that we'll be doing. And in this case, we decided to do two director, two uh, actors, you know, who were both fans of, but necessarily we don't haven't devoted a whole topic to. Um, it's basically you all get to pick between Robert De Niro and Jack Nicholson as a topic for the show. Which is pretty exciting. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think we've covered what uh, two De Niro films on the show. I think we covered quite a bit. Considering... Well, I know we did Heat, we did The Irishman. I mean, there's probably a couple more here and there. But mm-hmm. we, <laughs> we never but did a Nicholson, I don't believe. We have never done a Nicholson, no, which is interesting. There's so much we could cover with particularly Nicholson. Um, we're not showing any bias here, but who we want to win the poll necessarily, not at all. But, you know, you can all vote out there. It'll be um, on Wednesday the 24th, that poll will be out, and it'll last for a week for you all to vote. Like I said, just contributing $1 a month gets you the chance to vote for that. That's all we ask. And uh, you can find me at not the Who's Tommy on uh, Twitter and Instagram. I also do some writing on marianithomas.wordpress.com. And uh, you can find Adam putting on various different disguises at some place near you. You hopefully will find that. I would really discourage yeah. finding that. Yeah, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. No, not whatsoever. But um, if you want to subscribe to more of us just talking here, you can't see Adam's various disguises, all his various costumes he has on display. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on the ESO Network, why not dig into our archives on the Podbean Network um, for the like first 67 episodes or so that we did before this. And nothing else, if you could rate, review, or share the show around, that would help us out. That gets us more visibility. Yeah, just a quick, quick uh, like and a share button. That's 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 all it takes. You know, please, for God's sakes. Now, Adam, before we go, uh, we do usually do our picking here, and we'll at least be doing a bit of picking for our next episode. Uh, and that is in reference to our next topic, because uh, it'll be the week of 4th of July. Uh, we're doing an interesting topic I don't think many of us might have expected. We're doing a uh, episode based around the AFI Top 100 Movies. And if you don't know that, that's the American Film Institute um, back in uh, 2008 put out an updated list of the top 100 American films. Uh, and uh, they have an interesting list uh, that we decided to pick a good and a bad pick from. And, you know, normally, Adam, you would have two uh, bad picks in this case, and I would have two good picks that we'd each mm-hmm. choose number two, one, and ten for, and I'm picking our movie. But in this case, is another example of our Patreon. Uh, we put out a poll every month as well for like, hey, pick a specific film for a topic we've already chosen. And uh, we did this for your bad picks for this, Adam, which were, correct if I'm wrong, Forrest Gump and E.T. the Extraterrestrial. That is 1,000% correct. Right, your hot takes. Your mm-hmm. hot take, bad picks for that particular list of films. Those are both on the top 100 American films, according to the AFI. And uh, our patrons chose, ultimately... E.T. the Extraterrestrial. It was a very close race, um, but I'm very curious to get into that one, because the last time I saw that, probably back in like high school, I remember still quite loving it, so it'll be interesting to revisit now. Oh, well. Hope you're ready to have your fucking dreams crushed. <laughs> Every week. 
Always yeah. Happens. <laughs> yes. Daily. But daily. Well, that's true, daily, but yeah. then especially every time we record. But, yeah. Adam, I have my two good picks. These are two, honest to God, good picks from this list. And uh, each of them have assigned number between 1 and 10. So you, per usual, have to pick a number between 1 and 10 that gets us our closest pick to the good pick to pair with E.T. that our patrons chose. So, Adam, number between 1 and 10. Oh, man. We will go number six. Okay. At number eight, I had a film. Uh, you know, this film, Adam, it could be the start of a beautiful friendship. Because uh, we're going with a pure A classic. 1943's Casablanca. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. How, I, I, it's been a while since I've seen it. But let's... Let's just say the last time I saw it, I was not super impressed. Hmm. Well, not, yeah. not necessarily super impressed, but not... I, nah, okay. <laughs> Whoops. Oh, fuck. This is gonna be, so this is going to be a rough one for me. All right. We'll take that however it means. Um, but then at number three, I had one that I think is super underrated, even though it's on this particular list. I think it's a great movie. Um, is the 1950 film All About Eve. That's a good movie. Now, that is a good movie. That's a yes. very good movie. Very catty people being catty toward each other. Yes, yes. So Casablanca and E.T. Well, hope you got seven hours to watch them. <laughs> Casablanca is only like an hour and a half long. I know, it feels like it's fucking five hours. No, okay. it doesn't. Fuck you. We'll oh, talk well. about this next week. Oh, but... you're right. My opinion is wrong. That's true. That's a, that's a very good point. I'm glad you admitted it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but on that note, uh, let's get into our disguises and uh, go ahead and just get out there, Adam. Let's uh, let's do our bad impressions like we do every week. I got a wish that I don't have to do any more impressions. Good night, everybody. been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Public store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.